Amen. Well, I invite you to be seated. You can turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 13 this morning. And I alluded to this earlier, but uh, George Orwell's parody of communism in Animal Farm basically provides an outline of how certain dictators have responded to COVID. In chapter 5, Napoleon decided to end Sunday meetings where all the farm animals would vote on various decisions. He began making decisions for the farm among a small private committee and then having Squealer go and report those decisions to the rest of the animals. They removed the ability for them to vote on the matters. Well, Squiller shared the news of this transition with the rest of the animals, saying this, No one believes more firmly than Comrade Napoleon that all animals are equal. He would be only too happy to let you make your decisions for yourselves, but sometimes you, make, you might make the wrong decisions, comrades. <laughs> and then, where should we be? So it's easy to feel defeated. Uh, when it appears the wicked are able to accomplish their will without any hindrance or retaliation. Uh, while the church struggles to survive and unfortunately more and more are closing as these lockdowns continue. And then you have businesses with godless, godless motives thriving. So we see the same thing in our, our personal relationships, right? We see these challenges causing division among us and so the frustration that results can lead to a compromising approach right to our christian calling and sanctification oftentimes we experience these frustrations and doubts because we actually envy what the wicked are able to get away with right we think that we're missing out on some superior way of living but we rarely see the fearful emptiness that accompanies the wicked. All right, we all have important lessons to learn. And I think one for us this year is that your longing for perfect justice will never be satisfied in this fallen world. I believe that's true for all of us. It's, it's quite possible that faulty expectations have compounded our frustrations in 2020. And so this morning, we'll further analyze our condition and consider how Scripture leads us toward a hopeful response. Right? We'll see our, our critical need for God's revelation in order to rightly understand and respond to the frustrations of living in a fallen world. We must live with a view towards the final judgment at the end of this present age. And ultimately, the revelation of redemptive history provides us or prepares us to face that judgment with hope rather than fear. We'll see why that is this morning. So let's ask the Lord for his blessing upon our reading of his word and our sitting under its preaching. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that you have spoken to us, our maker and our creator. You've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And so speak to us, Lord. Help us to draw near to you, to have eyes to see and ears to hear our need for your word. 
Help us to depend all the more to find comfort in your word and not in the news, not in uh, just the, the random places which we oftentimes go, whether it's uh, food, the kitchen, whether it's uh, friends. Lord, those things can be helpful, but Lord, we primarily want to rest in you. Lord, we want to use the resources and gifts that you've given us to further our trust in you and not to weaken it. So, Lord, help us to depend upon you now to, to have hearts that are softened to the truth, that we would respond in repentance and obedience. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So read with me Revelation chapter 22, verses 10 through 13. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the first point in your outline, if you're following along there, <clears throat> is act according to your age. And I've, I know you've heard this from your parents, and we swore as kids that we'd never say it to our kids, and yet many of us have. Act your age. Now, I'm... I'm I'm not actually referring to that. I'm referring to acting according to this present age, this present evil age in which we live. There's a certain level of freedom to live in ways that are contrary to God's revealed will, but the time of judgment is near. Scripture is clear on that. And so this reality ought to temper any expectations we have prior to Christ's return and encourage our perseverance to the end. The Old Testament prophet Daniel was told to seal up the words of his prophecy and tell the time of the end. He, did it three, he was told that three times in Daniel chapter 8, verse 26, in 12, 4, and 9. But John here, in this passage, in verse 10, is encouraged to keep the words of his prophecy unsealed. Revelation is meant to be read and understood by the church throughout this present age, which, as we've seen multiple times in this series, is from Christ's first to his second coming, to the entire age. It's the latter days. This is the church age, as some have called it. Revelation is meant to be read and understood by the church throughout this present age, for the time is near. A time that was distant for Daniel has now arrived for John. And writing at the end of the first century. Two churches who needed to hear that revelation in that century. And so the fact that these words remain unsealed indicates their importance for our present condition. Just as it did for their present condition. Revelation is a critical component to our ability to persevere. Amen. And so the church is supposed to consider Christ's return as imminent 
as an imminent possibility. The events portrayed in Revelation have already begun, but they are not consummated until Christ's return. And so those living in this present age have gained a, a great deal of insight into the detailed plans of God's redemptive purposes. Right? The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ provide confirmation that we are living in the latter days where the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies has been inaugurated. It's begun to be fulfilled. But we await that consummation at his return. And if we can keep that in mind, I think it, it affects the way we live presently. Living in light of the coming judgment. Living in light of Christ's redeeming work at the cross. So those living in, in the present age have gained that insight and, and the death and resurrection of Jesus provide that confirmation that we are living in these days and it reveals an ongoing expectation as well of tribulation. There's, there's no idea that during this present age we're going to be kept entirely safe. We're going to struggle. George Ladd comments on this passage in a helpful way regarding our present struggle, he says, John's prophecy outlines the spiritual struggle between God and Satan, specifically there in chapter 12, which expresses itself wherever the state exceeds its divinely ordained role as the supporter of law and order, as we read about in Romans 13. So there's a physical component to that spiritual reality that's taking place, but that physical component is true in every age. Wherever we see that, that um, wrestling between church and state, between God and Satan. So therefore, the, he, he continues, while the book is primarily concerned with the climax of the struggle in the appearance of Antichrist, <clears throat> it's also relevant to Christian experience wherever and whenever the anti-Christian principle of totalitarianism manifests itself. Amen. So generations are largely defined by major events that occurred in their lifetime and that affected a majority of the population. So we can go back to the greatest generation who survived the Great Depression, who survived World War II, they tend to believe in personal responsibility, duty, honor, and faith. The silent generation that followed them is defined by the Korean War and the Cold War. They stood up to communism and began the civil rights movement. The baby boomers enjoyed the years after World War II. They did see war, but they also began testing the limits of their freedom with indulgence and sex, drugs, and rock and roll that defined that generation. Gen Xers, Millennials, and Gen Zers have all experienced various degrees of economic and technological change, but few of them understand the struggles of living under a totalitarian regime. Many of them possess a naive optimism that is utterly ignorant of history. And the history books that they have read oftentimes are, re are revisions of that history. 
And so in 2020, we are seeing the ongoing manifestation of the spiritual struggle between God and Satan. In America, we are seeing the beginning stages of a soft totalitarianism, but few people under the age of 56 seem worried about the threat. And so the reality is this present age is filled with people acting according to their nature, as we see there in verse 11. This is, it, 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 it can sound like a command, right? It says, um, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. But it's, it's more accurately a declaration of this present darkness. Those united to evil and filth will act accordingly. Those united by faith to Christ will do right and be holy. That's what it's saying. Now, it's not, it's, there's not some naive expectation of perfection here. It's just talking about the ongoing categories of good versus evil, that struggle that is taking place in every generation. And this also was alluded to by Daniel. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 10, it said, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. That was speaking of the latter days of which now we are living. So we never move beyond this battle between good and evil in this present age. This is true even within the community of professing believers. Right? The weeds continue to grow in the midst of the wheat. However, the great day of harvest is coming. As Matthew 13, 30 teaches us, right? where the two will be separated from one another for all eternity. The wheat will be gathered into the barn and the weeds will be burned up. Amen. So when we consider the situation of the early church in the, in the first century in Asia Minor, at the end of that first century, we can understand how urgent this particular word of revelation was for them. Right? They were on the verge of compromise to the point that Jesus threatened to remove the lampstand of his light from their midst. He says this to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. So they were condemned for their loss of love for others, both inside and outside the community of saints. So while they possessed a commendable love for the truth of God's revelation, of his word, they struggled to love one another. And they needed to understand that a church which fails to love is on the verge of losing its light. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit applied the words of this prophecy to their community, and they survived. They were renewed. They, can, they, they must have come in repentance before the Lord and renewed their love for others. And of course, this message is not merely for that first century church. It's a message that we all need to hear. It contains wisdom, rebuke, insight, and comfort that all churches need to hear. In every generation, because we live in this present darkness where righteousness is always mixed with filthiness, we need God's word to frequently remind us to walk by faith and not by sight. 
So where do you find your comfort in the midst of this pandemic? How do you respond when every news channel seems to exaggerate the statistics and the government remains determined to make health decisions for you and your family? Are you grateful that God has given us his word to study and equip us to live in the midst of a world that is broken by sin? We have the privilege of living in an age after that first coming of Christ. And so we benefit from knowing about the ministry and suffering of our Savior. Wickedness and righteousness exist alongside one another, even within the context of the church. And so what sets us apart from the world is not where we go, but what we believe. And so may we not settle for attending church, but may it equip us and spur us onward throughout the week to live in light of the blessings that flow from our salvation. We may or may not face the same kind of persecution that the original audience faced in Asia Minor, but we are united to the church universal across time and space. And so may these words ground us and comfort us in times of tribulation. May they drive us to repentance where we've gone astray. May they lead us to reconciliation with God first and foremost and then with one another where division has occurred. And so we are to act according to this present age in light of the judgment according to your works. That's the second point in verses 12 and 13. Act according to your rage and then the second is judgment according to your works. Now Once again, Christ begins to speak here in verse 12. He had previously exhorted his readers to keep the words of Revelation that we looked at last week because he is coming soon in verse 6. Now he reiterates that sentiment, I'm coming soon, acknowledging the possibility of his return at any time. Christ's purpose for coming is made clear in this verse, though. It's to bring about the final judgment according to works. All right, so based upon the previous verse that we just read, this is a universal judgment. This is a a scope that covers the righteous and the wicked. All will stand before that great white throne judgment. And if you want to consider that further, you just have to go back a few sermons in the series when we were in Revelation 19, which was now about a year ago. But based upon that previous verse, the recompense and repayment that is in view is universal in scope. Everyone will face judgment, the evil as well as the righteous. You can look at Revelation 20, verse 12, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, Isaiah 40, verse 10. O. Palmer Robertson in his book, The Christ of the Covenant says that scripture consistently indicates that the final judgment of man shall be according to works. While salvation is by faith, judgment is by works. That's consistent. So the topic of final judgment, it's been confusing for Christians. What exactly is being judged at this time? Well, there's several important truths to keep in mind. First of all, The judgment that is taking place of works is for men and angels. Look at multiple scripture uh, um, examples or 
references of this, you can look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 23, section 1, and the scripture proofs that are attached to that, as well as the larger catechism, question 88. But just from this passage here, you have this Greek word uh, is misthos. It's usually translated rewards or wages. Okay, so he's coming on, coming on the heels of verse 11. This recompense that he's bringing will be based upon the deeds that are done. Amen. So works are a necessary consequence of the salvation that Christ has purchased. Because we have been saved by faith, we will produce the fruit of good works. Secondly, and most importantly, at the judgment, believers will be acquitted of all guilt. You've got to have that clear in your mind that when we stand before judgment, we do not stand before him with fear of facing his wrath. We stand in the confidence that we have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so we will be acquitted based upon that. Thirdly, unbelievers will be condemned at the judgment. As confident as we are that believers will be acquitted on the day of wrath or on the day of judgment, it will be a day of wrath for unbelievers. Amen. And the evildoer and filthy will receive their wages, which is eternal destruction. Amen. <clears throat> According to 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. So this does not mean, and hear me clearly on this, this does not mean that we place our hope on the last day in the good works that we've done. Our righteous deeds cannot earn favor or pardon from God, even though they are graciously rewarded. Our hope is in the one who is bringing the judgment. So the one who is bringing judgment is the one who's been present, witnessing everything that's taking place, not only in this present age, but from the very beginning. And that's what we see in this last verse that we read, verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. So he's saying I'm A to Z. And if he's A and Z, then he's everything in between as well. There's not any part of history where Christ has not been a, a witness to it. And so if Jesus was represented at the beginning and the end, then he's present at every point in between, and that is the grounds for his authority to bring about perfect justice. So if Revelation 22, 10 through 11, the first part of our passage, gave us the encouragement to devote ourselves to God's revelation in light of this present age, then these two verses provide the motivation. Since Christ's return is near, and will be unexpected, we must live as if it could be today. And that doesn't mean that we don't plan for the future or fight for issues of temporary justice, but we do all things with the recognition that ultimate justice can only come when Christ returns, and it's coming soon. So ultimate justice can only be carried out by Jesus Christ. Jesus was the only human to perfectly fulfill the righteous demands of the law. 
Yet he suffered under the wrath of his father, taking upon himself the penalty that our sin deserved. He was separated from the love of God for the first and last time as he hung upon the cross. And so Dane Ortland, in his book Gentle and Lowly says it like this. He says, would it not have been the withdrawal of God's love from his heart, not the withdrawal of oxygen from his lungs that killed him? Amen. Speaking of Jesus, what, what is it that killed him on the cross? It was not primarily the physical no. torment. He died before the other the others that were crucified next to him. Amen. They had to have their legs broken so that they would suffocate on the cross. Jesus was already dead. And it's not because he was weaker. Mm-hmm. Physically. So it's, it was the withdrawal of God's love, Ortland says, not the withdrawal of oxygen from his lungs that killed him. Who could hold up mental stability when drinking down what God's people deserved? In the presence of this mental anguish, wrote B.B. Warfield, the physical tortures of the, crucifix, of, of the um, crucifixion retire into the background. And we may well believe that our Lord, though he died on the cross, yet died not of the cross. But as we commonly say, of a broken heart. It was the suffering of Christ's heart that overwhelmed what his physical frame could handle. So Ortland continues, he says, but why would he go through with it? Why would he step down into the horror of hellish condemnation when he was the one, the only one, who didn't deserve it? John 13, 1 tells us, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He set his heart on his own. They are his. As John Owen writes, there is not the meanest, the weakest, the poorest believer on earth, but Christ prizes him more than all the world. And so are you certain of the acquittal that awaits you on that day? Do you live in the assurance that Christ's heart is filled with love for you? If you are, you will anticipate his return with hope. Not only that, but hope spurs us on to love and good deeds because we are united to a righteous and holy Savior. One who knows everything from beginning to end. And so we delight to honor him. So we need the help of God's revelation in light of the coming judgment. As God's children, we do not cower in fear of this judgment, but we actually look forward to the day of our final acquittal and the gracious reception of rewards. And the only thing you deserve is eternal judgment, but Jesus offers eternal life. And so there's no greater reward than that, and yet, however, Our gratitude extends further because Christ has promised to crown his gifts that our enjoyment might be overflowing for all eternity. 
And that's the inheritance that awaits the saints. And so let us continue to worship and honor the one who, will, who has purchased that inheritance for us and guaranteed it and kept it in heaven for us on that day. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this reminder that even on the day of judgment, we do not stand in fear as your people. We stand confident because of what Christ has accomplished for us. Lord, it is a, it is a truth that is hard to fathom. Lord, it should be something that we never tire of meditating upon. And as we respond in song and as we participate in the Lord's Supper, maybe be reminded of the tremendous privilege we have to be united to the only one who lived a life that we could not live and then bore the wrath that we deserved in our place. And because of that, we come with reverence, but we come with overflowing joy. And we long to honor you in the way that we pursue righteousness in this life. Protect us and guard us. Through this time of tribulation, cause your church to thrive and cause your saints to stand firm. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response is found on page 300 of your Trinity Psalter hymnal, also in your bulletin. Come, thou long expected Jesus, we'll be singing verses 1, 3, and 4. <laughs>